So we're going to do something this morning that um, I've maybe only done, I actually don't remember if I've ever done it before, and that is we're going to preach from a different text than we planned to preach on. (laughs) For all you planners out there, this is getting crazy, and for the rest of the 90% of you, it's like, that's life. Uh, The reason for it, though, is somewhat significant. And that is that we've been talking as elders and praying and, and studying for quite some time about starting a series on the life in the Spirit. And throughout the week, two things were happening in my heart. And one was that God was really giving me a, a passion and a particular word to start that series with. And then when I realized that this church was only going to be a third full, uh, I began to be somewhat discouraged about preaching that message, and so God gave me a passion about a different text to preach this morning, and we'll start this other sermon on the life and the spirit next week, but this morning, the text I'd like you to turn to in your Bibles is Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. And this is a message, and this is a a place in Mark's gospel that talks about patience and timing. It's a message that's all about the patience of Jesus, and it's a message that's all about the timing of Jesus. Because in this text, we'll see that our notions of patience and our notions of timing are completely confounded in the light of, in the face of what Jesus does here. So much so that the title of the sermon is The Inexplicable Timing of Jesus. The Inexplicable Timing of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles and you've turned there by now, I'm going to read to us Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I can just touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And there were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning desperate and hungry for a touch from you, a touch of grace, a touch of hope, a touch of healing, a touch of encouragement from your word. Lord, many of us feel the great tension of this text, don't understand your timing, don't understand why it seems our prayers go unanswered, don't understand where you are and why you sometimes seem distant. So we ask God this morning through the preaching of your word that you would instill hope and faith and that every single heart in here would be enamored with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning, the timing, the grace, and the power of Jesus. The timing of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Point one, the timing of Jesus. It says here at the beginning of the text, as we started reading, that a man who was one of the rulers of the synagogue came to him, Jairus, he's a ruler of the synagogue, this means he's a man of prominence. He's a man who is a cultural elite. He's a respected man. Verse 22, as we said, says he's a ruler of the synagogue. One scholar described what that means, what that phrase means. A ruler of the synagogue, accordingly, was not a worship leader or a professionally trained rabbi, but a lay member of the synagogue who was entrusted by the elders of the community with the oversight of the synagogue and the orthodoxy of teaching. In modern... Baptist, Presbyterian terms, he's the chairman of the board. He's the chairman of the elders. And this is the man who's a man of prominence among the community. He's a respected man. He's a religious man. He's a man that's dedicated and devoted to God. And his daughter's on the verge of death. Verse 23 says, my little daughter is at the point of death. It doesn't say uh, she's, she's a little sick, uh, things seem to be getting worse. We're a little worried things might be able to take a turn for the worse. No, he says she is on the verge. She is at the point of death. Imminent death is on the forecast. And Jairus asks Jesus to come, to lay hands on his daughter and to heal her. And Jesus says he'll go. And he goes. They begin this journey to Jairus' house. And now try to imagine... 
the state of mind that Jairus is in at this point. It's probably the most fearful time of his entire life. He's probably never been more anxious. He's probably never been more unsure, emotionally unstable, and any other time in his entire life. This is the last ditch effort. This is all he's got. All his eggs are in Jesus' basket, and they're walking to his house. And suddenly it says, a few verses down, that this great crowd, verse 24, is following them. And is thronging about them. It's encroaching them. It's almost preventing them from continuing to walk. And as you know, in Mark's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, and other places, crowds begin to follow Jesus from place to place. And sometimes these crowds are interested in Jesus and who he is. And sometimes they just want to see the miracle worker do his thing. And as they continue on their way, imagine Jairus again. They're pressing in. They're thronging Jesus. In a sense, you could say they're mobbing Jesus almost. He must be thinking, get out of my way. Jesus, tell them my great need. Someone needs to say that there's a little girl down the street that's about to die, and Jesus needs to get there. But then suddenly, Jesus is the one who stops everything. Verse 30, he says, who touched me? Everything up to this point has been moving towards Jairus' immediate need, this little girl, and Jesus stops everything. He stops everything because someone has reached out and touched his garment. Because it says that he's felt power leave from him, go from him, and he stops the caravan. And the disciples even, they're clearly feeling the pressing death at the door. And when he asks, who touched me? They almost look at him like, you see that there's a crowd around you and you just said, who touched me? They're like, I don't know, like 25 people just touched you, you know? But he won't be swayed. He is persistent to know who touched me. And Jesus stops everything to talk to a woman who's been ill for 12 years. She's been sick for 12 years. She has a chronic illness. And he stops all of this for a woman that's had a flow of blood as long as this little girl's been alive. And he stops everything. Jesus stops the dash to the acute problem to linger with the chronic problem. The acute problem, the obvious problem, is this little girl that's on the verge of death. This little girl who's 12 years old is about to stop, is about to die, and he stops to help a woman that's had a problem for 12 years. How many of you have been through, <laughs> how many of you have been through a triage situation <laughs> at emergency room? Okay. If someone that shows up with a 12-year chronic problem and someone shows up that's on the verge of death... To not deal with the person on the verge of death would be considered malpractice. I've walked, I'll tell you one way to get seen quickly at an emergency room. You show up with a seven-year-old boy who's taken a nail gun and put it through his finger. And you just have him walk in like this. I know because that happened to us. Imagine, again, what Jairus is going through at this point. Imagine... A scene from our day. 
the ambulance is wailing down the road to go to this dying little girl, and it pulls over to the side of the road to deal with a chronic illness. I have six daughters. I have a 12-year-old daughter. And I can imagine very acutely what this must have felt like. I remember a scene when one of our daughters was little. She was only about one or two years old, and she was beginning to suffer what seemed like epileptic seizures. It was very scary when you see a one- or two-year-old child convulsing on the floor. In fact, the very first time it happened, uh, we, thought she was, we thought she died. And she turned blue, and her body was shaking, and we called 911, and it seemed like it took forever and ever and ever for them to arrive. And I remember the scene of the paramedics showing up and getting in the ambulance and my wife getting in the back of the ambulance with them and me getting in the car and following the car down the road to Providence Hospital, just wondering what what is going on in that ambulance right now. And to think what it would be like if all of a sudden we got to a massive traffic blockage and the paramedics get out to begin dealing with someone that has a chronic Issue. That must be something like what Jairus is experiencing here. The timing is completely inexplicable. All Jairus needs is for Jesus to hurry, but Jesus won't be hurried. All that Jesus is doing is, stop, is, 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 is stopping to talk to this woman. And while he's standing there talking to this woman, the worst happens. Verse 33, and while he was still speaking, there came one from the ruler's house who said, your daughter is dead. The pain that Jairus must have felt in that moment, how must he have felt in that moment? How must he have felt about Jesus in that moment? And yet in the next verse, verse 36, Jesus looks at Jairus and says, do not fear only believe. So let's draw a few applications at this point. First, God's blessing, his mercy, his grace, his answering to prayer very often does not coincide with our sense of what should happen. Our sense of timing, our sense of what we think we need and when we need it, oftentimes doesn't coincide with God bestowing upon us answers to prayer, mercy, grace, and blessing. We look at circumstances and we look at situations and we see our own acute problems and we wonder where Jesus is. We know our acute current needs of the day and we're oftentimes less asking the question, where is Jesus to meet these acute situations. Some of us have lost a home before and felt the feeling of following Jesus for many years, given our life to the local church, given our life to raising our children in a godly way, and now this. What kind of timing is that? Some of us have moved to Portland a few years back, looking for new life, new opportunities, You did it under prayer, you sought counsel, but it's just not working out the way you thought. 
It's hard, it's difficult, sometimes it feels like no one really understands you, your situation, your circumstances, and you ask Jesus, how long will this go on for? Or you're tired at work, you've worked there for years, provided for your family, raised the kids, raising the kids, but it just sort of feels like you're stuck. How can you keep living like this? You've done everything you can. Why won't Jesus just step in and send some help? You've worked hard. You've sacrificed financially, emotionally, relationally. You've been committed to the local church. You're a faithful employee. And now a promotion's on the horizon. And you get passed up. You're the one that gets passed up. The timing of Jesus is often just inexplicable, ununderstandable from our perspective. It seems at times that our prayers go unanswered. But what Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36 is remarkable for all of us. In fact, to not sound too trite, it's almost as if what Jesus says to Jairus when he says, believe, trust me, he's looking through Jairus, through the text of Scripture, and he's saying it to all of us this morning. To look to him, to trust him. Listen to how commentator James Edwards describes it. He says, when Jesus speaks to Jairus, he doesn't rehearse what has just happened. He doesn't explain why or what might have been. Instead, he looks at him directly and he speaks to him. There is still one thing that Jairus can do, but he must shift his focus from the circumstances of his daughter to Jesus himself. Do not be afraid, only believe. This is the challenge before Jairus and this is the challenge before everyone who meets Jesus Christ to believe only in what circumstances or allow, or to believe in the God who makes all things possible. One thing only is necessary, according to Jesus, to believe. The present tense of the Greek imperative means to keep believing, to hold on to faith rather than to give in to despair. With respect to his daughter's circumstances, Jairus' future is closed. But with respect to Jesus, it's infinitely open. Faith is not something Jairus has, but faith is something that has Jairus, carrying him from despair to hope. Jesus' authoritative word to Jairus is not to fear, but to believe. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is teaching us that his timing is compl- his, his inexplicable timing is not incompatible with his love, grace, presence, mercy, and care. I say that again. It means that Jesus is teaching us that his inexplicable timing is not incompatible with his love, grace, presence, mercy, and care. There's a great lesson a faith that's very clear in this text here. As you know, in other places of Scripture, like James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. They're challenging words that James opens this epistle with, Right? He starts his letter with, count it all joy when you meet trials. What a challenging word to start a letter to encourage Christians. That the next time you reach a trial, the next time you're coming to a spot where it seems like there's unanswered prayer, count it all joy. Delight in that. 
that is a challenge to me. <laughs> and if I'm, you're anything like me, that's a hard thing to do. My first reaction when I reach a trial, my first reaction when I seem to have unanswered prayer, when I have an acute problem that's not being answered, is to not go, this is a joyous occasion. But the answer, of course, is what the trial produces. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There are things that will happen, and there are things that are happening in your life that are inexplicable, but they are bringing about something that is far greater than you could have ever dared hope for. Let's put it to you this way. C.S. Lewis has said about suffering, of course, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And this text is certainly about suffering, but it is really more about timing, about timing and about patience. And many of us know, I don't claim to be the authority on this as a younger Christian man. For those of you in the front row, you don't understand that I just called myself a younger Christian man. But I can say that the most profound lessons that I've learned in my life of trusting God and growing in Christian humility and growing more dependent on Him and learning to pray and learning to go to Him in His Word have come in times of inexplicable waiting. The times that I've seen myself depend on God more, enjoy Him more ultimately, trust Him more, look to Him in His Word for prayer, I've actually learned, excuse me, look to Him in His Word for His presence, and I've actually learned to pray, have it come in times of inexplicable waiting. Let me give you an illustration that I heard years ago. I don't know where I heard it, but it's, it's interesting. That we live on a planet that's 93 million miles from the sun. We live on a planet that's 93 million miles from the sun. Now imagine, for the sake of illustration, this paper, one piece of paper, represents the 93 million miles. So this paper represents how far we are to the sun. The distance from Earth to the next star, we would need to take a stack of paper, and, and, and it would be 71 feet high. How tall is the ceiling, Rusty? 28, 28.5. Matt knows it exactly. <laughs> so a stack of papers three times higher than this ceiling is us to the next star. If you were going to stack these papers to stretch across the span of just our galaxy. The papers would be stacked 310 miles. And our galaxy is one among billions. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ holds the universe by the word of his power. He speaks it into active existence. Now, if he is a God that can do that, then he 
I think we can say he can have some reasons for the timing on things in our lives. He can know things that we simply cannot understand about what we need and how we need it. So that's the first lesson. That his ways, his inexplicable inexplicable timing is not incompatible with his love, grace, and mercy towards you. And when he says to Jairus, do not fear, believe, those aren't trite uh, words to find just on a coffee cup in a Christian bookstore. They're words that are an utter trust in dependence on the God who speaks the universe into existence and can be trusted, is the only one that can be trusted. Second lesson we learn, second application here, is that both Jairus and this woman got far more than they bargained for. <laughs> they both needed something from Jesus, surely. They both needed something from Jesus. One needed to have a chronic problem and one healed and one needed an acute problem healed. But they ended up giving Jesus far more than they expected. And at the same time, Jesus gave them far more than they expected. Think about Jairus. Think about the faith it took. This religious man, this ruler of the synagogue, the faith that it must have taken to go to Jesus and say, I'm at my wit's end. This is all I have left. I need you to come and lay your hands on my daughter. That's an act of faith. I I mean, commendable. He's going to Jesus with a very practical need. And now the faith, the crowds are swarming in and Jesus asks them far more than he ever wanted to give Jesus. He was going to Jesus to say, can you heal her on the verge of death? He wasn't going to Jesus to say, can you heal her from death? And now he looks at her in in verse 36 and says, do not fear, believe. He was willing to trust him when his daughter needed a healing. But Jesus said to him, trust me now that your daughter needs a resurrection. But you see the other side of the coin. He gave him far more than he asked for. He came and asked for a healing. But what Jesus gave in response was a resurrection. So I think there's a principle there. And we look at the woman as well. The woman's looking for help with a chronic problem. She's looking to just kind of do a, 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 a grab and dash. She's looking to kind of squeeze in through the crowd and maybe just kind of like, boop, and sneak out. And uh, she gets the first part of what she wants. But Jesus asks more of her. He stops the whole situation. You realize that Jesus is a rabbi in public, and now a woman who is ceremonially unclean has come to him and touched him. She has taken a massive risk in coming to him. And what he asks for is for her to expose herself, to come out, to come clean, stand before everybody and tell us what you did. She just wanted to go like this. And he says, time out what just happened. Because you realize what he's giving her. She had some kind of potential quasi-spiritual view of Jesus. That if she just touched him, he's some kind of magic healer and she can be healed. But Jesus wanted her to know something more. Jesus wanted to touch her with a kind of relationship. He didn't want to just heal her of a chronic problem. He wanted to transform her and transform her life for all of eternity. When he says to her, it's your faith that's made you heal. And he calls her daughter. 
He calls her daughter. So what she bargained for was a healing and instead got a relationship with the king of kings. He asked more from her and he gave her more than she ever dared expect. So that's what we learned from him. That we all came to him with a certain level of devotion, a certain level of trust. And when we come to him, he asks us for a far deeper one. But friends, here's the point, here's the application. That he can be trusted. He can be trusted to give us far beyond all that we ask or think. According to his great mercy, his love, and his power. So as you press into him deeper and deeper and further and further and become more and more reliant on him, he will give you far more than you ever dared hope for. That's point one, the timing of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. There is a continual theme in Mark's gospel that comes out here, and that is the one that we've been talking about for a moment, and that is the one of insider and outsider. Mark is constantly turning insiders and outsiders on their head in his gospel. So insiders are the religiously elite. Insiders in this culture are men. Uh, insiders in this culture would be the ones that are um, of the same ethnicity, okay? So somewhat different, but not all that different from today. The outsiders, of course, would in this culture be women. They would be uh, women that were ceremonially unclean, and they would probably be women that had quasi-magical views of Jesus. And what Mark is doing throughout his gospel, and what Jesus is doing throughout his ministry, is he's turning these categories on their heads. He's saying that the way that human beings normally think, he says, my kingdom is not that way. He says, my kingdom is not that way. You realize that the person in this text who is not, well, I'm not going to say that Jairus is self-deluded, but the person who totally knows who she is is the woman. She's the one that it says responds in fear and trembling when Jesus calls to her. And now imagine this scene, that when Jesus stops He's stopping to look and to talk to a woman while a religious male leader is standing there waiting. He is intimately concerned about this social outsider while this probably ultimate social insider is just standing there patiently waiting for Jesus to finish what he's doing. In a crowd, who is Jesus most concerned with? (laughs) In a crowd, Jesus is most concerned with those that are true outsiders. Those that are vile even, those that have committed wicked sins, those that are far from him. And he's the one that he, he turns to and he speaks to and he offers his love, grace, and mercy. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you were a Christian as a child. But you've fallen far from him. And you don't know why you're here this morning. It was snowy outside. It's cold. You don't know why you're here. But Jesus looks through this crowd of insiders. And he's concerned with you. He wants to show you his love, his mercy, and his power. 
He wants to reach out and touch you, and he wants to say, you're my daughter. You're my son. If you would receive it by faith this morning, if you would look to him and you would reach out with the eyes of your heart and you would grab hold of him, he will come to you. There is no sin in you that can keep you from him. Let me again read a block quote from James Edwards because he's so good on this text. He says, What does Mark accomplish by sandwiching the woman's story into the story of Jairus? Jairus and the woman have only one thing in common. Both are victims of desperate circumstances who have no hope apart from Jesus. Otherwise, their stories diverge sharply. Jairus has a name and a position. As the ruler of the synagogue, he has enough clout to summon Jesus to his house. The woman has none of these. Her name is not even given and has no position. Only her, identi- her only identification is her shame, a menstrual hemorrhage. She must approach Jesus from behind, whereas Jairus can approach Jesus face to face. Jairus, in other words, is a person of status and privilege, but in typical Mark irony, he does not hold an advantage of regarding the one thing that matters. It is the woman who exemplifies faith. And in this respect, their roles are reversed. Despite her embarrassing circumstances, she pushes through the crowd of disciples to reach Jesus. Her gender, her namelessness, her uncleanness, her shame, none of these will stop her from reaching Jesus. To this undaunted woman comes the healing and liberating word, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. When Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, how should Jairus understand the command to believe? With what kind of faith should he have? The answer is that he must have the kind of faith as this woman. This woman exemplifies and defines faith for Jairus, which means to trust Jesus despite everything to the contrary, that this kind of faith that has no limits, not even the, not even the raising of a dead child. Do you realize what he's saying here? That it's the woman's faith who comes first, that Jesus says, yes. And when he says to Jairus, just believe, he's saying, be like this outsider woman. She becomes the example par excellence of faith in this text, not the religious insider. This woman who is desperate becomes the example of faith to us. So let me press it into us this morning like this. Some of us have become religious insiders and we don't remember what it means to be desperate for a touch from Jesus. Some of us have come to church for so long, it's just become routine. It's just become something we do. And we think about our problems and circumstances. You've been around the church long enough. You've seen God do a miracle or two. But you really know that this is just kind of how it works. Or maybe you're raised in the church. And you're 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, 21, 22. You're just kind of used to it. When's the last time that you were truly Desperate like this woman. Do you see what is happening here? Jairus is learning faith from this woman. Some of us here today need, desperately need a touch from Jesus to see our own desperate condition before him, 
to see our desperate condition like this woman, to lay aside every hindrance, anything that we think gives us any kind of status, anything that's given, anything that's given us any insider religious status needs to be repented of and departed and see ourselves on equal footing as this woman who's desperate for Jesus, who is only brought in and welcomed in and called a daughter because of his word to her. I was thinking this morning and praying for you all this morning and just thinking, I didn't know how many people would be here. And this is why this word was so powerful to me this morning is because some of us just knew we needed to come because we needed a word of grace. We needed something. We needed to taste something of the things of God. And the message to you this morning is that seeing your own desperate need for him is all that he requires of you. Seeing your desperate position and status before him is all that he requires of you to reach out in faith and he longs to embrace you with his loving arms. So we've looked at inexplicable timing. We've looked at asking and getting more than we were expecting. We've looked at seeing the faith of this desperate woman healing her. And I'll say two more things. I'll say one more thing. But oh, how tender Jesus is throughout this entire teaching. Certainly he knows something that Jairus doesn't. Certainly he knows something that you don't, something that you need. But the tenderness that we see of the Savior, the one who upholds the universe by his power when he comes to a little girl, And he goes into this room, this child who's now dead. He sees this 12-year-old girl. And the words that he speaks to her, Talitha Kum, can be translated, little girl, or as one commentator suggested, little lady. He comes down to a child. And he says, little lady? I think, of course, of my own daughter's. And the tenderness that I have towards them. And I think of how much more Jesus, the merciful Savior, in his tenderness, comes to this little girl and just says, little lady. And she gets up. And she gets up. And she's walking around. And just to be just totally practical, in case we missed the point, he says, can someone get her a sandwich? Get her something to eat. Do you know how exhausting it is to be dead? He's hungry, man. So he's tender with us. He's tender with her. Well, third point three that we've seen, the timing of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, and we must end with the weakness of Jesus to truly understand what's happening here. It says earlier in the text that Jesus perceived that power had went out from him. realize, of course, we have to realize that he was touched. We just have to assume that he was touched by many people in this crowd. And yet he only says of this woman that power is actually releasing from him. 
I think a couple things the text is teaching us theologically. First, it's indicative of the personal relationship that the two have between each other. The personal relationship that the two have between each other. But second, and probably more importantly, this loss of power points to something. Because for Jesus to heal, there is an exchange that's necessary. When he's healing this woman, he's giving something of himself to heal her. It's his power that goes out to heal. And of course, it's pointing to the power that must go out from him to heal us, not just from sickness, and not even just from death, but the power that must go out from him to heal us and save us from the wrath of God. Because on the cross... Jesus Christ had all the power go out from him. And he was the one who was dead. So that through his death, he might rise again on the third day. And he might give us the power of his resurrection. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate insider. He is the beloved son of God who becomes the ultimate outsider, the one who will die naked on a tree outside the city so that you and I can become insiders in his kingdom, so that you and I can be welcomed back into the life that the Father and the Son have in the unity of the Spirit. Jesus the insider becomes Jesus the outsider so that you and I could be welcomed as sons and daughters, as insiders in his kingdom. The loss of power that went out from him on the cross was so that he could give us the power to be raised to newness of life. And what has happened in you if you're a Christian is far greater than the stopping of a hemorrhage. It's far greater than even being resurrected from earth, an earthly, a dead earthly body. What's happened to you is that you've become born again to a new and living and abiding hope. What a wonderful, merciful Savior we have. One who would serve us and serve us to the end so that we could be welcomed into his kingdom as insiders, as those that are now fellow heirs with him, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your love towards us, the great love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that we would see you with eyes of faith. Help us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we now come to the Lord's table where we celebrate the goodness of God in the elements of the bread and the wine. If you are a Christian, and which means that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism, and you're joining us from another congregation, we invite you to partake of the Lord's table with us. If that's not you, if you're not a Christian, we instead encourage you to not take of the elements, but instead to consider Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you, and I urge you 
to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in him. You can come up row by row. Take the elements back to your seat. We'll start in the back. Take them back to your seat, and I'll come up and lead us in corporate communion.